Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Anthony A. Barrett, author of the book, Rome is Burning, Nero and the Fire That Ended a Dynasty. Tony, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you, and thank you for having me on the show. Oh, well, thank you for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I... um. As you can probably tell from the sound of my voice, I was born in England, but I lived most of my professional life in Canada, in Vancouver, where I was um, professor at the uh, University of British Columbia. And I retired there some 15 years ago, and I've had a fairly kind of interesting wandering life since then. I have... uh, I have daughters in Oxford, England, and Australia, and I spent time there, and I have a sort of position in Heidelberg, the University of Heidelberg, where I am now. So I spent time in Germany and in, um, in Canada, and I've continued working on my, um, on my historical interests since retirement. So I've retired only in the sense that I don't earn a salary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still doing academic work. What was it that led you to write a book about uh, Nero and the uh, Great Fire of uh, 64 AD? It's a slightly embarrassing. I, I, I'd like to pretend that it was as the result of some great intellectual impulse, but I'll, I'll be honest. When I was um, about 13 or 14, I think, and um, I lived in the, uh, the north of England, and I went to the movies, and I saw the movie Quo Vadis. <laughs> Peter Ustinov as Nero, and I was so overwhelmed by it, I went and read the, the Sankovich novel on which the, uh, the movie was based. I, I was absolutely fascinated by it, and it never left me. And uh, I, I've gone through my academic career, and since uh, retiring, I've kept thinking, I should work on that. It, it's been with me. All of these years, and finally, um, Princeton um, indicated that it would be uh, happy to entertain a book on the subject. And my field is the, um, I suppose I've made a career out of mad emperors. (laughs) My field is people like uh, Caligula and um, and Nero. Maybe from that consequence of seeing the movie at 14, who knows? And so it all kind of um, came together a couple of years ago. And uh, yes, and I, I set about writing the book and enjoyed writing it enormously. One of the things I found so fascinating when I read it was how wide-ranging it is. It is about the fire that took place in Rome in, in 64 and its uh, consequences. But you, were t- you also talk in the book about the uh, imperial system at the time. You talk about fires in ancient Rome. And you even talk about the legacy of the fire coming down to the present day. You managed to put in a, a mention of Quo Vadis. You, you mentioned a Doctor Who episode. It, it really is impressive to consider how much is contained in a book about a single event. Uh, yeah, thank you. I, I I thought it important to put the book in its context. And also, th- this fire, unlike other great fires, and in fact, I think probably unlike pretty well all major disasters, is intimately and inextricably linked with one single individual. And that's the uh, the Emperor Nero. Uh, you, you you can't think of the fire of Rome without thinking of Nero and vice versa. And you know, the, the most, I would say the most famous saying that comes to the English language from antiquity is fiddling while Rome burns. So we're, we're conscious of this um, all of the time. So the, the, 
the book is partly a description of the disaster, the archaeological evidence for it and so on. It's also a book on a political event um, and the, uh, the consequences of that event. And I think that explains to some degree why I say it is, um, yes, it is a book that is, that is wide-ranging. I have to go into what was going on in Rome before the fire and what happened in Rome uh, after the fire. And, of course, as you pointed out, what, what is still going on today? It's, uh, it's the topic of pop songs, endless Italian um, movies and TV series, <laughs> um, operas, ballets, um, you name it. Um, you know, the fire of Rome comes into it. I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about the the, the history of fires in ancient Rome, because as you point out, this is far from the first fire. This is not even necessarily to say the 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 tenth or the eleventh fire. That the city had this long history of fires. What how did what was that issue like for the ancient Romans? And what made the what was it about these fires that made the Great Fire so different? Right. Um, well, I think in an ancient city, whether it was Roman, Greek, you know, Mesopotamian, wherever, right, the, the, the fear of fire was a constant preoccupation. And we do have Roman writers who say that Romans are obsessed with two things. They're afraid of being robbed and they're afraid of being killed in a fire. <laughs> These are the, the two obsessions. And of course, it's it's little wonder because there was uh, so much, so much timber used in uh, in fires. Um, it's very very difficult before you know the provision of water under pressure and so on to have an effective way of, uh, of fighting fires. And frankly, in, until really, I'd say what sixty years or so before the Great Fire. There was no systematic method of uh, of fighting fires. You add to this a particular phenomenon in Rome, and this was the other uh, high rise, what are called insulae islands. These are apartment blocks that would um, that would rise up you know, at least sometimes five stories, uh, probably more than that. We have archaeological remains. Of uh, stories, five uh, apartments, five stories uh, high. These were occupied by the, the very poor. There was no firefighting uh, provision in them, and these were a fire trap. And it's a constant preoccupation of Romans that, as they say, the um, the, the fire can be blazing merrily on the ground floor. You're up in the top, and you have no idea that there is um, that there is a fire. So fires were a recurring event uh, throughout Roman history. You did ask, why is the AD 64 fire different? That'd be a very, very difficult question to answer. I mean, different in the physical sense. Why was it so much more devastating? I think it's merely a chance occurrence of hot weather. It was in July in a particularly dry summer on a night when, when the fire started, when you had particularly erratic winds. Now, the winds were strong and they were blowing in all different directions. But I think it's generally the case when you, you look at the great fires of history, the great fire of Chicago, the great fire of London, London, it starts in a baker's shop. Chicago, well, I know the city of Chicago has exonerated Mrs. O'Leary's cow, <laughs> but that is the, you know, it was probably something just as, um, just as casual that started it. But then you need the, the, the physical conditions have to be just right, if I can word it that way, um, just right to, to lead to, uh, to a major uh, conflagration. So I don't think there's anything 
special about Rome in AD 64 that, uh, that made it prone any more than there was in London in the 17th century or Chicago in the 19th century. I think in many ways it was a freak. Um, now, one can say that what makes it especially interesting is that it happened at a time when Nero was emperor. Uh, that's a different issue. That's why it becomes uh, politically interesting. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that. Who was Nero? Where was he uh, in during at that point in his reign? And what was it about his presence that you know had the potential of making the his uh, your response to the fire so controversial? Mm-hmm. Well, Nero was born um, AD, uh, uh, AD 37. We're almost certain. It, most scholars will agree that he was born AD 37. It might be in 38, but probably AD uh, 37. He was, uh, he was a member of the, um, of the imperial family. His, um, his mother was the sister of the uh, the emperor uh, Caligula, his mother was uh, was exiled for suspicion of political plotting against Caligula. Nero's father by this time was dying, and Nero was brought up by an aunt. His mother eventually was recalled to Rome. Uh, she married the emperor who followed. Uh, Caligula, that was the Emperor Claudius. She was a ruthlessly ambitious woman, and she ensured that when Claudius died, it's claimed by eating a poisoned mushroom that she had added to the uh, the menu. Uh, this um, this was in AD fifty four that her um, her 16-year-old son would uh, would succeed. So Nero uh, came to power. He'd had no preparation for the role. He was just a teenager. Um, no preparation, no, uh, no training. Um, and he was at first a very, very popular ruler. He had a lot of uh, charm. He was under the guidance of his mother and a a philosopher, the famous Seneca. Gradually, as he got older, he became restless under this control by his elders. He, um, He threw aside the influence of Seneca. He threw aside the influence of his mother and eventually murdered her. Um, However, in all of this, he seems to have remained immensely popular with the masses, with the population at large, and the nobility was willing to put up with him because they were doing quite well. The Rome was fairly stable. Nero might have been bumping off his relatives, but the rest of the nobility had nothing to fear from him. Now, he did embarrass them. He insisted on taking part in chariot races in public and giving performances of his poetry and on the lyre. But they were willing to put up with him as long as they were doing quite well out of the situation. And that's more or less the situation that we have at the time that the fire breaks out, that you have Nero as a rather flamboyant, exotic, um, very extroverted um, emperor who loved public performance, who loved being at the center of attention, Um, somewhat selfish, a little bit irresponsible, but not disastrous. It was a a fairly mild regime compared to what had gone on before. People weren't being executed left, right, and center. So it was, it was I think, for Nero, something of a golden age. People were, people were quite happy with him up until that point. I was wondering if you could perhaps walk us through the fire itself. Uh, because, as you explain in the book, there, there's a, 
uh, a lot about it that we, you know, know generally. Uh, but you also explained how it, we're going, how we've gone about trying to uncover the details through archaeology, through parsing the sources. What do we know about the progress of the fire? How, how long did it take, and what parts of the city did it destroy? Well, the uh, the fire broke out in um, in July of uh, AD sixty four, and it lasted altogether nine days. And there seems to have been a short lull in the middle of that, or maybe after six days or so, a lull that probably lasted less than one day and started again. So we, we, we know that. We know that it started close to the great arena of Rome, the Circus Maximus, and this was an arena that runs more or less northwest to southeast between two hills, Aventine and Palatine. I don't want to get too detailed here, um, but if you picture the, um, the circus running between these two hills um, in July 65, and I should mention that the, the circus was used, of course, for, mainly for chariot racing, but it was also a kind of meeting place on the outside the, the, the circus. There were there were booths and stalls and cookhouses and so on. There's a very, very popular gathering place for Romans during the day. And they would grow there during the day in great numbers. And then, of course, it would be almost dead at night because you didn't have normally didn't have performances at night because of. You wouldn't have lighting as we have now. So normally that wouldn't happen. And the, the historian Tacitus tells us that one of, the, one of the theories or one of the accounts is that the fire broke out in the, the store of merchandise outside one of these shops. This is very, very plausible. I should mention that the Circus Maximus was a place where you, you had a number of fires. I think there are at least four fires recorded there at different points in Roman history. So there was a lot of flammable material lying around. So it broke out in this, um, this pile of merchandise at night, and there was a strong wind, and it blew onto the Circus Maximus. Much of the upper stories of the Circus Maximus consisted of wood, so they caught fire. They then spread from the circus to the hill on the north, of the, the, the Palatine Hill. So that much we know. <laughs> after that, <laughs> after that, ah, who knows? Um, it does seem to have spread up the Palatine. Um, we have the ancient sources talk about a lot of destruction on the Palatine Hill. That is what we get from the literature. And we get little more from the literature, little more factual information. A lot of rhetorical accounts, of vivid accounts of people trampling on one another, of houses being burned and so on. But that's really the only precise information that we um, that we have, and so we then turn to um, to archaeology, and the archaeological excavations in Rome, and many of these have taken place in the last twenty years or so, have revealed considerable burning in the area north of the. Palatine. I know it's difficult to visualize this if you don't have a map in front of you, but if we take the Colosseum, from the Colosseum to the Roman Forum, and this is a valley between the Palatine Hill and the Esquiline Hill to the north of it. So the, um, the, 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 the area of the Colosseum itself, the Colosseum wasn't there at the time of the fire. That came later. So the area of the Colosseum and west of that, all the way to the Forum, considerable amount of evidence in terms of uh, burning material on a large scale. 
I mean, if you find a piece of burnt wood, it could belong almost to any fire. But this is um, this is massive um, evidence of burning in um, in that area. Beyond uh, that, we, sorry, I was, I was going to say that I, 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 you know, I, I, your your point about you know how difficult how it can be difficult to visualize without a map is is, is well taken. I, I should add that the maps that you have in the book are really fantastic, and I'm particularly struck by the map you have in the chapter on the Great Fire, where you indicate where you have where we where we are. are fairly pretty certain about where the fire was and where we yes. have good evidence of it and when you superimpose that over the map of rome uh that it really looks as though the the heart of rome itself had been burned out yes yes and but i i think the i think the important here is when you say the heart and it is the heart it is the um it is the uh the the sort of commercial center of rome and also what is, um, I, I think, is a significant point for which I see as a significant point. Also, the um, the the Palatine, the Palatine was the um, the the sort of prime residential area of Rome. This is where this is where all of the um, the the elite had their their grand houses. This is where most of the um, imperial palaces were located on the Palatine. So you have uh, much of the the kind of commercial administrative center of Rome was burnt, and you have the uh, the burning of the the let's say the elite um, the elite residential area. I, I was thinking about the comparison that might, that people might have. Uh, for those who are familiar with, say, London, the Great Fire there, that was a fire that primarily affected the city, the commercial area. What you're describing That's would fine. be equivalent to the fire consuming both the city and the West End, so and also a lot yes. of the cheap, uh, a lot of the poor neighborhoods as well. So while geographically it may it may you know be of a certain size in, in terms of the people it hit, you're talking about a, a pretty wide strata of of Roman society. Yes, um, we it, it's. It's almost certain, given the duration of the time, that it passed, I say, it, it was burning on the Palatine, it then spread over the Palatine into this area, this central area between the Colosseum and the Forum. North of that was the, um, was the, the, the poor area of Rome. An area called the um, the Sabura, and this is where you would have had the um, this is where you would have had these um, these um, high-rise uh, apartments, these high-rise flats, where you probably had most of the casualties in that um, in that area. But we don't really have um, archaeological evidence for there. Uh, that that. We shouldn't read anything into not having archaeological evidence. You know, Rome has had a long history, and the um, the archaeological evidence, of course, would have been um, would have been destroyed over the uh, over the years. The frustrating um, the frustrating part of, um, of this is that uh, that Tacitus tells us. He gives us actually some figures here. Rome was divided up into 14 districts. These are your administrative municipal districts, if you want. He says uh, four of those districts escaped damage completely. Three were burned to the ground. And the other seven were very, very seriously damaged. That's great, but unfortunately, he doesn't tell us which was which. <laughs> so you sort of pull your hair out in frustration. And I suppose that when he wrote, probably thought most people know. <laughs> most of his readers would know, but uh, but we don't. And um, and this is um, this is very very frustrating. But when he talks about the three that are destroyed entirely, these would have been these this this central area between the. Palatine and the the Esquiline and the Palatine itself. Now, before I read this book, I was 
very unfamiliar with the fire outside of, as you mentioned, uh, Nero fiddling while Rome burned. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, it, was that in, in fact true? Was he playing a musical instrument or was, was Nero uh, even in the city of Rome at the time? Well, when the fire broke out, he was in Antium, that's Anzio, the, the modern city of Anzio, um, staying at an imperial villa. He received word that there was a fire and he stayed in the villa. And this may seem like irresponsibility, but given the frequency of fires at Rome, uh, I, there was nothing, there was no reason for the emperor to return. When he discovered that the fire was serious, he did return. And he, he didn't just return and, you know, give people encouraging words. We're told he actually went out and took part in the firefighting personally, rushing from fire to fire, from blaze to blaze, um, trying, to, um, trying to suppress it. So he actually made an attempt to take personal part in the, uh, in the fire. Now, we have three sources, three major literary sources for the fire. All three of them report the story that people were disheartened because while they were being, their, their houses were being burned and their families were dying, the emperor had gone up to a tower in his palace looked out over the fire and then recited one of his great epics on the, the sack of Troy, drawing a parallel between the sack of Troy and the fire of Rome. It's this incident that has led to the, the famous saying, fiddling while Rome burns. Uh, ironically, none of the sources says that he was playing a musical instrument but he probably would have been. He would have been playing the liar. Now, what truth was there in that? Well, it's interesting that Tacitus, our main source, whom I have mentioned earlier, tells the story, he says, it was a rumor. Right? So that's the thing to <laughs> emphasize. There was a rumor that Nero was on the tower um, reciting the, uh, the poetry. So, first of all, I, I have very grave suspicions about whether or not it happened. But my next point would be, let's say it did happen. Now, we know Nero came to Rome. He attempted to, he attempted to fight the fire. It was unsuccessful. He's so overwhelmed by the spectacle, he's moved to poetry. And he looks out over the fire and starts to recite poetry. I don't think that that is particularly irresponsible. It's, it's a motive, perhaps, but I could understand anyone being, being moved by a spectacle like that um, to, to write. And I think it was Chapin who wrote about the great fire of Chicago for Harper's Magazine. And he said that when he saw the fire, he was struck by the horror of it. He said, but at the same time, you couldn't help but be gripped by the, the strange beauty of the whole thing. So to me, it seems to, it seems to make sense that someone like Nero, who is very, very much a performer, thought himself very much as a poet, that he might well have been inspired. But I, I wouldn't take that, uh, as I say, as a sign of negligence, of neglecting uh, one's duties. And I just add as a footnote to that, it's often said, oh, Nero fiddling, well, of course, he didn't because they didn't have fiddles then. <laughs> well, it's true, they didn't have violins. But when this phrase um, gains currency, which was actually in the 17th century, to fiddle just meant to play a musical instrument. It, it didn't mean violin. Nothing to, I mean, fiddle now is a sort of, folksy popular word for a violin it wasn't in the 17th century you could play a lute or a harp or anything you were described as um, as fiddling so as i say I, I i'm dubious about the story but even if there is some truth in it i would say i don't see it as as greatly significant i think nero 
He did his bit. He tried his best to fight the fire. Well, I think the story is, is, is fascinating based upon what you then go on to write about, because what you describe in the aftermath of the fire is, in some ways, four years of coming to terms with it in, in sort of a, a political sense. And you start by the the effort to the question of who is to blame. Now, even when some, uh, you have this, this event that's the result of natural causes, or as we might say nowadays, an act of God, that there yes. is always an effort to sort of point fingers. And as you point out, that as you as you describe, that takes place fairly soon after the fire uh, is put out. Yes, um, I think there's a natural tendency in the public when there's a big disaster. To, to want someone to blame. And um, we, we, we're told by Tacitus that yeah, almost immediately after the fire, people, people started to hold Nero, um, Nero responsible. I, to me, it's, it's almost an absurdity. If, if you think about burning down a city, <laughs> The, the logistics of burning down a city. You can burn down a building, and it could be you set fire to a building. That building can, if the wind is right and the conditions are right, that could spread to a major fire. But actually setting about burning down um, a city, except maybe in time of war, you know, during Napoleon's occupation of Moscow, the, the partisans, in large numbers, set fire to Moscow in, um, in all sorts of different areas. But, but to try to go in secretly and burn down a city is, is almost an absurdity, uh, apart from which at the time of the fire, it was almost full moon. The ancients were very, very conscious of this. This was their source of light. Just the worst time of the month to, um, to burn down a city. If you are if you are going to do it, so I think this is a matter of looking around for some sort of scapegoat, and it does seem that in the dynasty, the the emperors that followed Nero, and of course they followed him after turbulence. It wasn't just a natural succession. Um, they were happy to feed into this idea that you're lucky to have us ruling you, and to got rid of Nero because, you know, this man, among all of his other sins, was an arsonist and, um, and burned down, and burned down the, uh, the city. So I think generally we can, um, we can, we can discount uh, that. Feeding into this, um, this anger with Nero, I think, was a simple fact that the Palatine and the Esquiline opposite had been largely destroyed. The, the sources talk about the fine homes going back for many generations that were destroyed in the fire. So many of the members of the nobility would have lost their property at a time when, you know, you didn't have house insurance and so on. This, um, your house burned down, that was it. You, you'd lost it. And it's Really, at this point, that we find that the nobility turns against Nero. We, we, we find shortly after the fire, just in the months following the fire, we get the first conspiracy against Nero. Never been a conspiracy before that. So you get the first conspiracy, followed a matter of a few months by another conspiracy. You have um, accounts of um, the Stoic philosophers. These were a philosophical school that opposed basically the concept of the emperor. They were more or less tolerated before this time, but now they seem to have become particularly aggressive in their attacks on Nero. And so the Stoic philosophers, you find they're being um, tried for treason, and put to death. So you have clearly a change in the political mood at the top, not at the bottom. Um, despite all of the death and destruction, 
generally the uh, the ordinary Romans seem still to have been very, very fond of Nero. But that's not where the power rested. You know, the, the, <laughs> the power rested with the senatorial class. These were the these were the influential class. These were the class who provided the generals for the armies, the, the administrators for the, uh, the provinces. So they lost their fine homes. Adding to that, it was something of a financial crisis following the fire. The, um, the, the cost of rebuilding was absolutely enormous. And so Nero had to raise money by all sorts of special levies, special taxes. This would not have affected the poor people. They, they really had no, they, they didn't have anything to, uh, to contribute. It would have affected, again, the, the senatorial class, the, uh, the nobility. So this is the political importance of the fire. It marks a distinct turning point in Nero's reign, from Nero being the, uh, the golden boy uh, to Nero being the, the disaster. That, that's what I found so fascinating, found so fascinating about your book was you're describing what brings him down isn't so much the fire as it is that aftermath, that, that sense of how it, the taxes are going up, uh, the currency is being debased. And then he has this grandiose re reconstruction project, which is, you know, some sort of reconstruction needs to happen uh, given all the devastation, but how... As you described, the, these plans come to be seen as, or, 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 or have have been interpreted since then, as being these basically these very self-aggrandizing projects that benefited Nero at the cost of those pro those property owners who had lost all those lovely homes. Yeah, um, uh, yeah you, I agree with you entirely when you say not so much the fire, but the aftermath. If this had been a fire that had, I think, restricted itself to the poor area. I, it would have it would have gone and been forgotten um, uh, because it affected the uh, the powerful and the wealthy. It became a source of um, it became a source of great uh, contention. Now, after the fire, we find uh, two things. Um, first of all, Nero undertakes what we would call social welfare programs. He arranges for the the housing of the people. He puts, he allows people to come and stay in the imperial estates um, as, a, as a temporary measure. So he houses the people. He, as soon as he can, arranges for um, for grain shipments to start again to uh, to feed the people. He also brought in um, new building regulations, uh, wide streets, uh, the lack of a party wall. Height limits for buildings, um, uh, the use, um, the restriction on the use of wood in um, in the building of homes. These were all very, very, um, very, very sound, sensible um, regulations. And he um, he created what we would call public government um, initiatives. He he arranged for. Uh, there were these, this class of wealthy individuals in Rome who didn't have full citizenship. They were, they were freed slaves who'd done well for themselves. He, he granted them full citizenship if they would invest a certain amount of their savings into construction, into the building of homes. So I think this was all quite, um, quite inspired. Um, he also, and this is where the problem arises, he had this idea of beautifying the parts of Rome that had been destroyed by fire, of replacing them with a truly spectacular and monumental Rome. Now, this was right from the outset almost. Well, certainly by the next dynasty, by the next generation of emperors, this was portrayed as the attempt to build a grandiose palace um, for a tyrant. Well, from what we can tell, and very, very little of it um, uh, survives, but from what we can tell, it seems to have been a place that was a mixture of public and private. It was like a sort of a grand 
park area with imperial palaces inside, but access to the public. So it would have been a wonderful amenity for the public, and its um, and its star feature would have been um, where the Colosseum now stands, a large ornamental lake. Um, uh, so this would have been a large ornamental lake that the public would have had access to. So this was not, it was on a, spec, a grand spectacular scale, but it was, it was not a selfish palace. It wasn't a palace that he built purely for his own enjoyment. I would say it was a palace built by a ruler who says, we have the opportunity here after this destruction yeah, with a bit of sacrifice now to give us a city that we'll, um, yeah, we'll be proud of for, for centuries. But I say it was misrepresented by his, uh, his opponents. So uh, Nero, is, uh, you know, Nero dies four years later as a result of you know, all, the political chaos, uh, you know, yes. uprising, everything. And, and it, you, you, you draw a straight line from the events of the fire and the aftermath to that. How is it that the uh, the the legacy of the fire has uh, been so continuously uh, misinterpreted? How, how is it that we, you know, ha, you know, with all these cultural representations that we have and plays and movies and TV shows, why, you know, how has that perpetuated some of these misunderstandings that you've talked about? Things like uh, the the fiddling and 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 the sense of of, of general Nero's, uh, you know, you know, in a uh, inability to you know respond adequately to the fire when it seems like what he was ultimately uh, you know uh, attacked for was the fact that he was responding to the fire and its and its yeah. and its destruction. Well, I think what you have here is what we would now call false news. Right? <laughs> That's. Um, <laughs> Um, and this is from um, almost starting almost immediately after his death. As I say, the, he's, he has been um, brought down violently. The, the, the next dynasty, they didn't, um, they didn't succeed immediately after Nero. After Nero, there was a period of turmoil, and you had um, succession of uh, four emperors. Um, but Vespasian ends up in... The year 69, Nero dies in 68, Vespasian uh, takes over in uh, 69. Uh, sort of Vespasian, I think, and his sons after him ha have to justify taking over the empire from, as it were, the legitimate emperor. So it's in their interest to depict him in the, the most negative terms possible. So they say he came back to fight the fire. Well, he was only doing that because he was trying to save his own palace. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't uh, from love of the people. It was to save his own palace. But then they say, well, the, the, the actions that would have been taken to fight the fire, well, pretty well all that you could do in the ancient world when there was a fire, you had to create fire breaks. Right? I mean, you, you could, they did have pumps for water, but you had to, carry the water to the pumps first. So they were more or less ineffective. What you had to do was try to predict where the fire was going to go, and then with controlled fires, create, create a dead area so the fire would not be able to progress beyond a certain point. So the, the fire services would have been carrying out, creating these fire breaks. This was represented as arsonists. These were... Nero's agents out trying to burn the city down. He then undertook the, um, the, the social measures, the benefits, and, and Tacitus comments on this. Yeah, he did all these things for people, but it wasn't because he cared about them. It was to make himself popular. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, what can you say? I think, well, if, if this is what a ruler is going to do to make himself popular, go for it, you know, and I see nothing wrong with that. And then the, um, uh, even this idea that the, the provision later of the wide 
of the wide streets to, you know, to, which in, in a way would act as kind of fire breaks. If you have wide streets, there's a fire on one side. It's not going to spread so easily to the other. That was criticized because it didn't offer as much shade as the old narrow streets had done. So he couldn't win. And then you, you get the, um, the, the stories. So all this negativity about his efforts, all presented as, um, as either his neglect or even worse, Nero is the arsonist. And this, this makes a much more dramatic story, of course, than a fire that just broke out in a pile of merchandise. It is, um, you know, especially for um, a, a flamboyant um, emperor like like Nero, he just lent himself to this kind of um, to this kind of negative press, as it were, and it has caught the the public attention. So we have the this double thing of the, the the great disaster plus the 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 flamboyant the flamboyant ruler who breaks all the the taboos in Rome about an aristocrat appearing in public on the stage and riding uh, chariots and the um, in the races. So it's a sort of perfect theme for later generations, and it, it never stopped. We then have to add to that the, the thought, we're talking about 64, this is in the sort of first, gener second generation of Christians. And we know that St. Paul died in Rome um, around about this time, St. Peter might have done. That's this is one of the theories, but far less secure information on St. Peter. But St. Paul, probably round about this time, but whether or not there's a link to the fire, we have no way of, uh, of knowing. We do know that there were um, there were regular there was there were actions taken against the Christians under Nero. There were actions taken against the Christians under his uh, predecessor, Claudius. But these were probably low-scale um, actions because this period in the Christian church, the main source of difficulty, it wasn't the Romans trying to clamp down on the Christians. It was, um, it was the Christians struggling with the, the standard... Jewish authorities. So Christianity at this period is still is still very very much it's a it's a Jewish religion um, seen by the Romans as a Jewish sect essentially. And wherever the Christians went, there seemed to have been problems with what if I could call these sort of traditional Jewish sects. If there is such a word as a traditional Jewish sect at this time, but traditional Judaism and Christianity. And so you have attempts by the Romans, certainly under Claudius, and this is what is probably happening under Nero, uh, at attempts to calm things down, perhaps by arresting the ringleaders and so on. But the, the tradition arises that after the fire, we have the first large-scale persecution of the Christians. And um, Christians were, were told by, um, the, by Tacitus that Nero wanted to find a scapegoat because people were blaming him. And so he picked on a group that was unpopular in Rome, uh, the Christians, and he, uh, he inflicted horrendous uh, punishments on them. This is a very, very tricky part of history. Um, it has become a, a kind of standard. It's an important event, of course, in the history of the church, really, the, uh, the first uh, Christian persecution. It's far from clear that it actually happened. 
the Christian writers and the generations after that don't refer to any persecution of Christians after the fire. And it's not until the um, the fourth century that um, that the that, that you get specific references to Christians being persecuted after the fire in Christian sources. So that's you know three hundred three hundred years later. So I I have a fairly open mind on this. I wouldn't like to say categorically that. Um, this persecution didn't happen, but I, I would say we have to entertain very, very serious doubts about it. But in any case, whether it happened or not, this has added another factor into the Nero as the, the first persecutor and as the man who put St. Paul and St. Peter to death. Hmm. So, so this is added to the, uh, to the brew. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, at the moment, I'm doing a much less exciting <laughs> book. I have to say, <laughs> um, it is on the um, it is on the Emperor Caligula. Well, I, I I've done a biography of Caligula. It's I did it some years ago, and in fact, recently went into its uh, second edition. But what I'm doing now is um, is doing a book on the sources for the Emperor Caligula, not so much on his biography on what he did or didn't do, but on what was written about him and how we approach what was written about him, how we um, how we we judge um, how, whether or not it's valid, comparing the literary sources with the archaeological sources. I'm working with a colleague, uh, John Yardley from Ottawa, who is translating all of the sources. So I do the introductions and the um, and the commentaries on those. So that's my uh, that's my current project. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you, uh, Anthony Barrett. Thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, and I've I've enjoyed myself enormously. Thanks for having me on. Oh, Bye-bye. it was our pleasure.